All right, well, let's get things started then. Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? It's a beautiful, beautiful day, kind of breezy, but beautiful outside. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get things, uh, things started here. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord, to uh, be here together and, and just to uh, worship you and to learn about you and, and sing praises to you. And so, Father, we're uh, thankful for this opportunity, and Lord, we just pray that uh, everything we do today would lift you up and, and would please you, and we just uh, give it over to you, and we just ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, today, as I told you last week, we're going to take a look at what the Old Testament has to say about the second coming. Uh, now, before we do that, we have to kind of establish a few things, kind of go back in Revelation a little bit. Um, you know, the Old Testament, the church didn't exist, and so the Old Testament is written primarily to the Jewish people, and there are some, few, you know, a lot of future prophecies there, uh, but it, its emphasis is on the Jewish people. And so, you know, I want to kind of uh, first kind of go back to Revelation chapter 12 and, and see kind of what revelation uh talks about as far as the jewish people so if you turn in your bibles to revelation chapter 12 i want to begin by looking at the first five verses and kind of uh see the characters in in revelation chapter 12 that it introduces us to it says a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. All right, let's stop right there for a second. Uh, and we're introduced here to three characters. Uh, a, a woman uh, clothed in the sun, uh, a great red dragon, and the child that this woman gives birth to. And as we discussed, this is actually the last thing we talked about last year uh, when we ended our, our study for Revelation for the, for the, uh, for the spring. Um, the, you know, the, the, the great debate in this passage is who's the woman. There's very little debate about who the child that she gave birth to is. There's very little debate, of, in fact, there's really no debate about who the dragon is. Uh, if you drop down into verse 7, it tells us who the dragon is. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. And he, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. We have no doubt who the dragon is, okay? We have no real doubt who the, the, the male child is, because in verse 5 it tells us that she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. You might remember that from last week. That was part of what we talked about last week, that, that, that you know, the Messiah, that Christ, when he would come back, he would rule the nations with, a, with an iron scepter. And this goes back to the, to the Psalms, uh, you know, that, where, where it's talked about. And, and, you know, really we have the life of Jesus essentially encompassed uh, just in, in that passage, the earthly, the, you know, life, life of Jesus. Uh, you know, it, it begins, she gave birth to this male child who, who would rule the nations, and then it says he was snatched up to, to heaven and to his throne. You know, and so basically we have the first moments of his earthly life, and we have the, the last moments that, that disciples see him being taken back up to heaven, and the Bible tells us he's at the, the right hand of God. Uh, and so, you know, we, we know who the, the, the young child is, the, the child who was born. The great debate centers around who is the woman. And there are three possibilities that, that are given for the woman. One is that the woman is the church, okay? Another is that the woman is Mary. And, and another is that the woman, uh, yes, Mary gave birth to the child, but Mary was, was a Jew and, and, and Jesus was a Jew, so the woman is the Jewish people. Those, that's the three, you know, big ideas. That's almost everybody kind of falls into one of those three. 
And as we discussed at the time, the biggest problem with the, the church is there's no way you can justify the church giving birth to Christ. It's just not, you know, many people and good people hold to that position, but it's really just, I think, one of the more egregious examples of people trying to force their theology onto the Bible. You know, the, the, the church belongs to Christ, not the other way around. You know, the church comes from, from Christ, not the other way around. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ. The church did not give birth to Christ. Honestly, it, it, it's borderline heretical. Uh, and it, it always, you know, it, it always, I find it comical every time I read kind of the arguments for this and all the hoops that people kind of jump through in order to try to justify that position. You know, it, it really, it, it, in my mind, it, it has to boil down to, to, to either Mary or, or the Jewish people, okay? And, and, you know, so who is it? Well, let, let's continue to read on because, you know, we begin with that kind of uh, earthly ministry of Christ after the child is born and the summation of that ministry, and then our picture seems to jump forward in time into end time things that John is focused on. And in verse 6, it, it speaks of the woman and says, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 100 or for 1,260 days or three and a half years, half of the tribulation. Well, that seems to eliminate Mary. Yeah, though, yes, Mary obviously gave birth to Jesus, but Mary didn't flee up into the wilderness somewhere for three and a half years and hide out and, and be protected by God. Yes, she and Joseph went to, to, to Egypt uh, and took Jesus with them. But, you know, she did not go anywhere by herself that we know of and stayed for three and a half years uh, while God protected her from, from the, the, the dragon. Uh, so, in my mind, it's, it's, this passage has always been fairly clear. I, I think the arguments for this being Mary, Mary kind of fade at that point. That, that Mary essentially is, uh, you know, she had that blessing of being the Jewish girl who, who was the one who gave birth to the Messiah, but the Jewish people had awaited the Messiah, and he would come out of them. That's what the Bible, you know, tells us. And so it's really the Jewish people that gave birth uh, to Christ. And so I, I think... You know, that is clearly to me what is going on here. We also have an interesting thing because it says that war, this war broke out in heaven between Michael uh, and his angels and the dragon and his angels. Uh, and so, the, the, you know, again, that it's, it's highly debated over when that war was. Is this the fall of Satan uh, or is this a future like fight in the heavens where Satan essentially again tries to take the heavens from God? I lean that direction just because most of the rest of this seems to be in, in the future. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the testimony of what we see here. Let me just kind of read a little bit further. You know, we, uh, angels, throw, you know, the, the throw, they throw Satan out of heaven. Uh, and it says he, at the end of verse 3, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Well, there's got to be people in heaven to get accused if this is the case. Well, if this happened before the creation of mankind at the, at the initial fall of Satan, there would have been nobody in heaven to, you know, for, for the, 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 the devil to accuse. And so heaven is rejoicing because he can't come up there anymore, is basically what they're saying. You know, he, man, he came up here every day and he accused the brethren and, and, and he was a pain in the rear, basically. And we are really glad he is out of here and, and we don't have to see him in heaven anymore. You know, it says he lost his place. He lost his ability to go to heaven. He tried to make war against God again, like he did the first time, and he got beat, and this time God said, you don't get to come back. And, and everybody's rejoicing. You know, they're, they're all happy that he's, he's gone. 
But in verse 11, it says they triumphed over him. And again, they're talking about the saints that he accused. It said they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the, the, the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Again, there had to be believers for that to happen. You know, so that seems to, to kind of set our timing here that this took place far after the initial fall of Satan, that this is end times, you know, doings here, that, that, that Satan tries to, uh, you know, again, fight God and take control of, of God's kingdom, and he fails. Now, it's interesting, verse 12, it says, therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, he is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. So he's going back down to the earth, he's madder than a hornet, he knows he only has a short time in order to somehow thwart God. And, and the next thing we see is when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman. That initial woman, Israel, he turns his attention toward her and he tries to pursue her and destroy her. Now, it, miraculous things evidently happen to, to save this woman to save Israel in the future. Uh, he pursued the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman was given uh, the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time and times and half a time. Another way of saying three and a half years. Uh, a time being a year. So a time, times, so two times, so that's three, and half a time, three and a half. Okay, that's how it's generally calculated. Um, so, you know, she, she gets away from him, gets up into the wilderness. Uh, he, he sent a serpent out of, uh, or a, uh, sent from the mouth of the serpent, spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and, and sweep uh, her away with a torrent. So he sends a flood of some sort after her as she's fleeing up into the wilderness. Uh, you know, and, and, and people debate, is this a flood of people, like a military uh, pursuit, or is this a flood of water? Uh, we don't know, yeah, you know, it could be either one, uh, but he sends a, a, a flood after her in some way, uh, and it said the, uh, in, in verse 12, the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And so, depending on which of you people take of what the, the flood or the river is, if it's people or if it's water, the earth opened up and swallowed them up. So God did miracles in order to protect her as she flees into the wilderness. That's kind of the picture. Um, then the dragon was enraged against the woman, went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandments and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So all the ones that, you know, the kind of the picture is Israel in the end times flees into the wilderness to escape from, from Satan, to escape from Antichrist. God protects them. Antichrist decides, you know, Satan puts it into his mind. Okay, God protected the woman, protected Israel. Let's go out and get the rest of the children of God, the one who believed in her son, who had the testimony of Jesus. We're going to turn our attention to them, and that's what we saw for the, you know, remaining chapters. That he, you know, sets up his world kingdom, and he starts destroying God's people. Well, at the end here, when Christ comes back, we're going to see that attention turn back to the woman. Uh, as I said, as we look into the Old Testament, we're going to see um, that attention turn back uh, to Israel. Now, just a couple uh, interesting things I want to point out before we, we do that. Uh, the New Testament also talks about Israel fleeing and there being a remnant uh, of Israel left. It's not just all Old Testament stuff that talks about this. Uh, if you turn to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus had some very kind of provocative things to say in Matthew 23, right before his Olivet Discourse, shortly before his death, just a, a short, short period of time before his death. You know, Matthew records Jesus basically just laying into the Pharisees. I, I, I mean, he just, you know, he just hammers the Pharisees, and, and, and in fact, if you look at verse 1, let me just read, uh, read the first couple verses to give you an idea of just how 
how much Jesus is, is, is laying it on to the Pharisees here. Then Jesus uh, said to the crowds and to his disciples, so all of the people that will listen, this is Jesus' commentary on, on the Pharisees. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. You know, they sit in the seat of teaching the law of Moses, essentially. So, so look at what Jesus says. So, so you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. You know, when they're teaching the law, you have to listen to the law. But look at what he says about them. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassel of their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and, and, and the most important seats in the synagogues. Uh, you know, and, and I, I won't go on any further, but basically he just, for the, for the, you can read that on your own like this afternoon, he just blasts them. You know, for the entire chapter. Well, I want to pick up on it uh, at, at verse 27 and just kind of uh, to close it out. And then what I really want us to see is verses 37 through 39. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to the people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors have started. Remember, they're going to murder him in, in just a, a very short period of time. So Jesus is saying, go ahead and you complete what you started. You, you can't admit that this is who you are, but this is, this is really who you are. You know, He's in, <laughs> I love verse 33. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the, uh, being condemned to hell? Like I said, Jesus is peeling the paint off the walls. He is letting them have it. You know, this is one of the great, you know, for lack of a better word, one of the great rants in, in, in the Bible. I mean, Jesus is just hammering them. Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. The apostles. Yeah, that's what their life is going to be like. No piece of cake. You know, he said, you, you're gonna, you did it before, you're going to do it again, and you'll continue to do it. You know, this is, this is your nature. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of, of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I, I tell you all of this, will come on this generation. So Jesus just hammers the, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, the scribes, just, just nails them. But then he says something at the end of this that is heartbreaking, and it's, it's also, yeah, it, it's, it, it can be pretty illuminating, I think. In verses 37 through 39, we see Jesus kind of crying out over over Jerusalem and the people of Israel. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. You've missed your Messiah. You, you don't have what I had for you. I wanted to gather you together to myself like a hen does her chicks. I wanted to set my kingdom up with you. That, that was my desire, but you didn't want that. And now you're left desolate. You're left without. You know, this is about to start. They're going to kill Jesus in a few days. He's going to be resurrected from the dead. He's going to go back up into heaven. And, and, and essentially, Israel's going to get a really short kind of opportunity where the apostles are preaching and teaching and many come to Christ, but the nation as a whole still rejects. And what do they do? They kick 
the early church out of the, 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 the temple. They don't let them there anymore. They start scattering the Christians all over the world around them, uh, you know, except for the apostles. They want to keep them there so they can keep an eye on them. They, 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 they kill James, you know, and, and so everything that Jesus said starts to happen, and the Bible tells us it begins the time of the Gentiles, where God turns his, his grace toward the Gentiles, which we should be grateful of because we're saved because of that. But for, for a period of time, God turns away from the Jewish people, and he says, you're, you're left desolate. You know, you're left desolate. But I want you to notice how he ends it in verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says to his own people, this is who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Jerusalem. He's speaking to the Jewish people. He says, you will not see me again. Now, he doesn't literally mean he's going to disappear in that moment. He means when when the time is done that they're going to, to kill him like they did the prophets. He is going to be resurrected from the dead. He, he, you know, yes, he will appear to his disciples, but he's not going to appear publicly to the Jewish people. And he's going to go back to heaven, and he's saying, you're not going to see me again until you call for me to come back. I won't come again until you call for me. You know, it, it's, a, it's a, a pretty amazing thing to think about, that, that Jesus, you know, we, we talk about a lot of things that's connected to the to the second coming of Christ, but one of the last things that Jesus said to, to the Jewish people as a whole, I won't come back again until you call for me to come back. That phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is, is from the Psalms. It's from, from the Messianic Psalms, it, it, the Psalms that, that, that they would sing as they entered in and out of Jerusalem during the, the, the high holy days, during Passover. Shortly, just a few days after this, Jesus is going to enter on, on a donkey, and they're going to sing this very thing. But you remember some of the commentary about that, that story as you kind of combine the, the, the passages. The people don't really know why they're saying that. They get caught up in the moment. The disciples, the, the believers in Jesus, are kind of leading this, and the Pharisees are like, you have to make these people stop. And Jesus says, if they stop, the stones will cry out. For, for that brief moment, it seemed like they got it right, but the people didn't really believe. Only the, the, the disciples really believed. Jesus said, there's going, to be a, there's going to come a time where you're all going to call for me to come back. Yeah, Dale. I think it'll be led by the leaders because the Bible consistently blasts the leaders, just like Jesus is doing here. Uh, that the leaders kind of led the people astray, so I think it'll take the leaders to, to lead, them, lead them back one day. Yeah. So that kind of sets the stage then for what a lot of, a lot of the things that are talked about in, in the Old Testament. Um, let me just point out real quickly, the, the New Testament does say that there's a time where this remnant will flee into the, into the mountains. Jesus just uh, chapter further on in, in, in the Olivet Discourse you know, he says this in chapter, uh, in verse 15 through 22. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one uh, go, go to the house, uh, no one on the housetop go down and take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers trying to flee into the mountains, you know, and, and being in, in that condition. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or, or on the Sabbath, which would be tough conditions, no transportation running, uh, you know, anything like that. He says, for then there will be great distress on equal from the beginning of the world unto now and, and never to be equaled again. In those, uh, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. The tribulation will be unlike anything that anybody has ever seen, but it will only be seven years. God Puts a time limit on it. It, if it says if it did, if he didn't, everybody would die. It's interesting that when Rome surrounded Jerusalem, leading up to its destruction in 70 A.D., the Jewish believers in Christ remembered Jesus' teaching here, and they fled up into the mountains. 
And you know, historically, we're told that not a single Jewish believer in Christ died during the Roman siege. In fact, that was the real breaking point in a lot of ways between the, the early church, which was predominantly Jewish, and the, the, the Jewish people who were, were not believers in Jesus. Because they blamed the church for fleeing and not warning the rest of them, and, and, and the church kind of got out of the situation alive. And, and from, from 70 AD on, where we see a major break that starts to take place between Jew, uh, the Jews and the church. And the church becomes largely Gentile, you know, starting at that point. You know, more and more so as, as, the, as time goes on. So here we see again this, uh, you know, prophetic call to, to flee. Now, let's look at a couple Old Testament passages uh, about the need for confession and forgiveness. Well, one, I want to turn first to Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 through 45, because God laid out in the law what the Jewish people would need to do if they, not if, when they sinned against God. God knew it was coming. Now, the particular place that this, we see this as being used is in regard to, to Babylon. And, and, and they're, they're taken into captivity in Babylon. But it is an, kind of an overall recipe for how confession is to be made amongst the, the, the Jewish people. Look at verse 40 of, of Leviticus 26. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are, are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For, for the, land, the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it, it lies desolate without them. Remember I said this is mostly dealing with, you know, God knew that Babylon was going to happen. He knew it long before it ever did. And, and part of, the, of what the Jewish people did that, that God was punishing them for is they had not given the land its Sabbath, which they were supposed to do like every seven years. You know, rest the land, and they did not do that. So God's saying, hey, I'm going to give the land its Sabbath. Uh, they will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God, but for their sake I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought up out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. So God essentially gives a recipe for what the Jews are to do when they sin as a nation and when God turns his back on them and, and, and lets them take the punishment that they deserve. They are to repent. They're to confess their sins and repent and ask for God's forgiveness. And God says, if you do that, I'll forgive you because I'm your God. You know, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I, you know, I, I, I'll remember my covenant with you, but this is what you have to do first. You have to confess. Now, it's not the only place that speaks of that. If you, if you go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, right at the beginning of Jeremiah's vision, uh, you know, he, is, he, he basically says this, The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah, which Think about that for a second. Judah was always the more righteous of the two, but that's how bad a shape Judah's in right now. God's saying, well, you know, even Israel's more faithful than, than Judah. You know, I mean, that, that's how bad things are. Go proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God, you have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every uh, spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the, the Lord. Return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Remember I told you that the husband-wife language that's used in both Old and New Testament. We see it again here. I am your husband. I will choose you. One from a town, two from a clan, and bring, bring you to Zion. Again, that kind of idea of a remnant. 
Not everybody is going to have the benefit of this. Only the ones who, who repent. You know, one from a house, two from a clan. You know, some of you are going to get this and you're going to repent. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with, understand, uh, with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will, any, will, nor will another be, uh, one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will, will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I, I gave their ancestors as an inheritance. So he looks forward to a, a day that all that, that the remaining Jews and Gentiles will will walk toward their God, will, 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 and, and Israel will never again, there will never be a need for an Ark of the Covenant. There will never be a need for a place that God will come to meet his people like he did in the sanctuary because he will be present with his people. It will be known as, as the throne of God. He'll be there. Okay, so looking forward to that future time, but yet it, it ha there has to be confession first. There has to be an, a plea for forgiveness. And one more example, Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, through, through the first three verses of, of chapter 6. And we, we read that portion before, uh, last, I think it was last week. Then I will return to my lair until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. It says if... There's a time that the Jewish people will repent and own their sins, and they'll call for God, and he'll come to them just like the rains come, and he'll bring, you know, the, the, the refreshing, uh, you know, just like rains do, that, you know, that, that, that they bring life, that Jesus will bring life to them one day. So these things are taught in, in, in both old and New Testament, um, the idea of, of a remnant, uh, let me read a, a, a verse in regard to that, Isaiah 65, verses 8 through This is what the Lord says is when the juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it. In other words, like the grapes are old, but there's still a little bit of juice in it. So don't destroy it. We can still get something out of it. Okay, that, that's, that's the idea. Look at what he says next. Um, there is still a blessing in it. So I will do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will be my and they uh, there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture to flocks. The valley of Achor, a resting place for herds for 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 my people who who seek me. The valley of Achor, uh, you know, was um, you know several ways it's translated. But it's basically a valley of despair or va valley of trial, uh, that kind of thing. So through trial, through despair. Flocks will, you know, will, will, will uh, live and dwell in the valley of Achor. Um, but as, as for, for you uh, who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune uh, and fill uh, bowls of mixed wine for destiny, and by the way, some of you may have uh, other words. Those were the, actually the name of, of, uh, like, of gods, like Assyrian gods, fortune and destiny. 
I can't off the top of my head remember what the names were. I think Manny was one of them, maybe. Uh, you might, some of you may actually have that in, 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 your, in your Bibles. Uh, some just put the name of the gods there. In other words, he's saying, for those of you who don't repent and you keep worshiping other, other gods, uh, you know, I, I will destine you for the sword. And, and all of you will fall in the slaughter uh, for I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Um, actually, I'm just going to stop there and instead of going on. You guys get the idea. Uh, some will repent, uh, and, and, and God will open his arms and, and, and take them back, but some will not. Uh, and, and they will continue in the stubbornness of their sin, and they will be lost. Um. Let me, let me read one more kind of verse as a little bit of background for this. Uh, a place of refuge, a f- uh, fleeing up into the mountains. Of course, m- many of you know that one of the popular positions uh, about this, one of the popular ideas is that this is talking about Petra, okay? And so where do we get that? And there's several verses, but I, I just want to kind of read one here. Micah, Micah 2.12 says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob, I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in in its pasture. The people who who throng, uh, the place will throng with people. And and some of you, how many of you have Basra translated as one one of those words uh, in in that passage? Anybody? Some, some, yes. Some translations, that's the word. It's, Basra means sheepfold. That's what the word means. And so some translations simply translate it as, as basically sheepfold, a, a place for, for the sheep. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen. Well, that's the word Basra. I will bring them together in Basra, you know, is, is essentially what it, what it is saying. Uh, there were two ancient cities that kind of went by that marker Basra or something very kind of similar to it. Uh, in Hebrew. One is Petra, and one is another city. I think the name of it is Bucera. Um, they are both, they both fit the bill. They're both in the mountains of Edom and modern-day Jordan. They're both in the wilderness. They're both a place that people could flee. Uh, most people believe Petra just because it kind of fits the description better. It's like a very narrow, tall, uh, you know, like, like entrance where a, only a couple people could go side by side at some places, so it's very easily defended. It was a city built up in the rocks, carved out of the rocks by the Nabataeans. Uh, and so many people believe that that is the Basra that is being spoken of, uh, that is what we call Petra, simply because it's the most easily defended of the two. But we don't know for sure. It, it could be either one. The point is, you know, God prepares a place in the wilderness for his people to, to flee. And he says, I'm going to gather you together like, like you gather sheep in a pen. You know, ancient sheep pens had a narrow opening so that, that, you know, the shepherd could count the sheep as they came through. And he could easily defend it because not, you know, you had to get through a narrow opening. So he could stand at the opening to defend, you know, his sheep. Then once they got in the pen, it opened up and they could move, move around a little bit. Well, that, that's kind of a pretty perfect description for Petra. Uh, and so that's why a lot of people believe that this is Petra. But the point here is the Old Testament does speak about God gathering the remnant of his people at a time of their trouble into a sheep pen and keeping them there and protecting them there like a shepherd would protect the sheep. You know, and so and Micah speaks about that. So let's look at some of these passages uh, that, that, that deal now with the second coming of Christ. Now, we saw back in, when we studied Ezekiel 38 and 39, when we studied Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 through, through 16, we, we saw um, the Antichrist gathering his armies into the Valley of Jezreel, uh, which is also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's known by several names, uh, and gathering them particularly to a place called Armageddon. Now, we spoke about all that before, so I'm not going to take the time to go through all that again. I do want to read one other passage, uh, Joel 3, verses 9 through 12, that will kind of just give us an idea here of this. It says, Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war. 
Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak, weaklings say, I am strong. You know, we, we actually have that as part of, like, you know, of, of song that we sing. And I believe it's also found in the Psalms. Uh, it's interesting in the context here, it's not a good context. It's not saying to God's people, if you're weak, declare he, He's saying to the enemies, the nations, you know, ble- beat your plowshares into swords. If you're weak, say you're strong and come on. Come and fight me. Look at what he goes on to say. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the wine press is full of the, of the vats, uh, full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And, and we'll stop there. We don't need to continue on. You guys get the idea. God draws them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, just like the other passages in both the Old and New Testament say. And he says, come on, all you nations, come fight against me. And the Lord will send down his warriors, and, and, and there's going to be destruction in the valley of Jehoshaphat. So we see that same thing in the Old Testament as we see in the New. Satan gathers together his armies there. Uh, and, and we saw last week that, that Christ, it, you know, starts to come. And, and, and it's, it's a bloodbath. It's a destruction. But as I said, we're going to try to fill in some of the details about what does the Old Testament say about this. Like, for instance, where will the fighting take place? Well, there seems to be a couple places. And remember I said last week that it seems likely that the fighting will be taking place on earth before Christ comes. And that he will come and, like, take care of business. You know? Uh, so we, we, that's actually what we see in the Old Testament in, 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 in possibly three different places. One is Jerusalem. Turn over to Zechariah. And again, if you want to just listen, if you don't want to be turning all over the place, that is, that is perfectly up to you. Um, but look at Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. A prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, who forms the human spirit within a person, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord God, uh, Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her. Uh, the Lord will, will save the dwelling of, dwellings of Judah first so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like, be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will, I, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem." So we see a picture of the fighting taking place, and God says, I'm going to strengthen Israel. I'm going to strengthen the people, uh, not just in Jerusalem, but also throughout all of Judah. I'm going to strengthen them so much that I'm going to make the Antichrist pay in this battle. They're going to be like a pot of fire in a wood pot. If you want to take them, you're going to pay the cost in blood. So the fighting, it seems like it's going to take place already, and God will empower the Jewish people, to be mighty in battle when this takes place. Let's look over at uh, Zechariah chapter 14, 1 through 2. The day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. 
The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the woman, women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. So the fighting will be great. The Jews will fight bravely, but ultimately, in a human sense, they can't win. The Antichrist forces are too great. They cannot save themselves, and ultimately, they will face their destruction. They will need God. You know, and, and, and they, they will be left with no, you know, they, they're going to know that they're going to need God. They're about to go down into defeat. God won't let it go that far, he says, but they're about to go into defeat. So they'll fight bravely. They'll exact a terrible toll on the Antichrist and his, and his armies, but they're going to lose. Ultimately, if God doesn't step in, they're going to lose. Let's... Uh, so that's the, and we'll come back to, to this, but that's the fighting, so some of the fighting in Israel, or I mean in Jerusalem. Now Basra itself, uh, you know, part of the fighting seems to take place there. Let's look at uh, Jerusalem, or I'm uh, Jerusalem, Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 13 and 14. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra will become a ruin and a curse, an object of horror and reproach, and all its towns will be in ruins forever. I have heard a message from the Lord, an envoy who was sent to the nations to say, assemble yourselves and attack it, rise up in battle. So God says part of the battle is going to take place there. Part of, he, it's not, he, he doesn't just take everybody to Israel, he also takes them after that remnant, you know, remnant the woman who fled into the wilderness. You know, part, Satan seems to, to send part of his armies there, and part of it is going to take place in, in Basra. And we'll come, again, we'll come back to that here shortly. There's also the possibility that some of this actually takes place in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. As we discussed, it seems to mostly be a, um, a staging place, staging place for the battle, but it does seem that there's at least a possibility that some of the fighting takes place there because. Uh, Joel 3, verses 12 through 13, we read just a little bit ago, he says, let the nations be roused, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. That doesn't necessarily mean fighting will take place there. It could just be the staging place. Uh, but it does at least open up the, the, the possibility that there will also be some fighting that will take place in the Valley of Jehoshaphat itself. So those seem to be the, the three kind of hot points in the, the battle that the, New, that the Old Testament talks about when the nations arise against Israel and attack Israel in the last days. Now, what happens? Well, first let's look at Israel's confession. First, we read Hosea 6, 1 through 3, so we don't have to go back and read that again um, that talks about the confession of, of Israel. Well, let, let's read it. I mean, we got time. Let's read it. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. That will be very literally the case. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to, the, to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that, that water the earth. Takes on new meaning when you think of the light, in light of the battle, doesn't it? He's torn us to pieces. He's wounded us. But he'll heal us if we only confess. If we just turn our hearts back, if we cry for him to come, he'll be our God again. He'll heal us. You know, and so we see Hosea prophesying about this. Isaiah 53, and I realize that we are moving very quickly today, but there's no other way to get this all in here. Uh, I edited a lot of verses out anyways. Um, so Isaiah 53, and, and, and we, you know, th this passage, we, we, we know that, that uh, modern-day Jews do not, you know, they, they don't want to read this passage. 
you know, they don't want to read this in synagogue. They, they have kind of essentially banned this from, from synagogue uh, because it, it points too clearly to Jesus Christ. We tend to think of this passage as, uh, as just a commentary on what Jesus has done, but I want you to think of it from the perspective of how it's written in Isaiah to the Jewish people who Isaiah is prophesying that they, they, you know, they're, they're going into captivity because of the greatness of their sins. For them, it's a national confession. So think of it from their perspective as I read it, verses one through nine. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew, up before, uh, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry land or dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and, f- and familiar with pain. No one from whom, uh, from whom people hide their, uh, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Again, think of it in first person, we. The Jewish people. That, that, that's who Isaiah is writing this from the perspective of. Their you know, understanding of that they screwed up. You know, we, we despised him. We held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, who in, in his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. We rightfully think of that as what Christ did for all people, but we forget the context of it is written of the the Jewish people one day realizing what he has done for them. Them kind of coming to their senses and saying, oh my goodness, what did we do to to our Messiah? What did we do to our Messiah? We despised him, we rejected him. And yet he died for our sins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. 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 Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't I, I well I think it's Jews alive at the time. I don't think it's Jews that have died. However, um, whether or not this is converts to Judaism and ethnic Jews or just ethnic Jews, I, I don't know that we can answer that question. Um, it, it seems to be I, you know, I mean, someone was kind of considered to be a part of the Jewish people if they were willing to convert, which meant circumcision and, and the whole shebang. Um, and, and so my guess would be it, it's whoever's left that kind of fits the overall arch of, of who the Jews are. Um, it, it, the debate over who exactly God is talking to uh, and who the Jews are is a, a, an enormous debate um, because it depends largely on your theology. Uh, there's what's called replacement theology, which basically says the church replaces all the Jews. 
Um, and, and people take that in different directions too. Some say, well, only on certain things. Some say on everything. And so I mean, it, it's really honestly too much for us to, 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 to solve here today. It, it's a whole section of theology all by itself. Uh, my personal opinion, I reject replacement theology. I, I think the New Testament rejects it. Paul rejects it, and we'll re- read that shortly here. Paul says there is a future for the actual Jewish people. Uh, so re- replacement theology to its extreme view would say that's not the case. Uh, certainly the, the Jews who are believers in Christ are part of the church, that, that we're all one in Christ. The Bible very clearly teaches that. But the question is the promises that God made to the Jewish people as a nation Does he keep those promises? Is he true to his word to them when he told them, look, if you repent and pointing to the future, someday I'm going to let you have it, basically. (laughs) You know, you're going to get nailed because of your rejection of me. But someday you'll come back, you'll repent. And when you do, I'll come back and and I'll save you. If we take that literally, then replacement theology kind of goes out the window at that point. If we don't, you know, then you get a myriad, like you said, of all kinds of other different views. My view is I take that at face value. If you don't, you have to throw out virtually everything in the Old Testament or you have to spiritualize it all, you know, which I'm not comfortable doing, uh, you know. And so, you know, that, that's the, kind of the best answer I can give you today. It is a, yeah, it's an enormous discussion. It really is. Uh, I, I, my recommendation on a discussion like this, go out and, and get a really good systematic theology. I mean a good thorough. Um, I, I, would re, I would highly recommend to anybody who wants a systematic theology. My favorite, I have several, but my favorite is Norman Geisler's systematic theology. It's four volumes long. It's enormous. But I would highly recommend it because he tackles it as both a theologian and, and a, as a philosopher, where he parses words very carefully, he explores all kind of different parts of the, of, the, of the problems because he's tackling it like someone would as an apologist, so, you know, to try to defend it and make an argument. So I would highly recommend, uh, you know, that for anybody who's looking for a real good systematic theology. Um, yes, sir. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, hold on. We're gonna get. We're gonna take a look at that. Um, you know, it. it uh, you're, you're exactly right, though, Dale. It, it's. It is gonna have to get really bad. Let's. I mentioned Paul's position uh, in the New Testament. Let's turn over real quickly to Romans chapter eleven. And, and we've talked about this before several times during this study, uh, so I'm not going to like you know read all of Romans 11 and and try to do an exposition of all of that. I want to just read uh, verses 25 through 27 because it's kind of like a nice summary of what Paul is talking about here. Um, you know, God allowing Israel to go into you know a time of apostasy, and God turning his mind to the Gentiles, to save the Gentiles. Uh, does that mean God is done with Israel forever? Because that's the great question. That's kind of what, you know, what Rick just asked about. That's, that's the great question. Well, here's how Paul, writing to the church at Rome, seems to answer that question. Romans eleven twenty five through 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited, Now think of what he's saying here. I don't want you to be ignorant because I don't want you to be conceited. You know, I I don't want you to think too highly of yourselves and and your position. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So their hardening is going to last until I've saved all the Gentiles I'm going to save, basically, is what he's saying. You know, when that full number of Gentiles comes in. Now, Look at what he says next. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will return godlessness uh, away from, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
you know, he, he goes on later at, at the, the end of this. Um, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, uh, verse, um, well, let me just continue reading on uh, verse 28. It says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So, you know, he says, look, they're, they're enemies for the gospel's sake. They've turned away from God, and, and I've turned the gospel to you as Gentiles. But don't get too haughty here. Don't get up on your high horse. You know, be humble about this, because when the full number of Gentiles is in, I'm going to take away their sins, Israel's sins. You know, and, and, and all that are left, I'm going to save. You know, because, you know, not essentially for their sake, because of the sake of their fathers, because of the promises I made to the patriarchs. That's why I'm going to do it. Because my gifts and my call are irrevocable. If I, make a, if I give a gift, I don't take it back. If I call, I don't take away the call. That's what he's saying. So Paul seems to be pretty definitive in what he says to the largest church in the Gentile world. Hey, don't get too high on a high horse here. You know, their they're, they're, they're time's coming again someday, you know. We already looked at, at verses in, in Joel. Oh, my word. <laughs> ah! <laughs> um, I, I, pardon me, people online. I, I <laughs> Man, time gets away. Holy cow. Um, all right, we're going to, uh, uh, two verses, and we'll stop at this part, Israel's confession. Next week, we'll look at, at the elements of the second coming itself, what the New Testament, or the Old Testament says about the actual second coming, and, and the fighting, and everything that takes place. Joel 2, 28 through 32. And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. The New Testament applies that first part of this to what happened at Pentecost. Pentecost essentially is a picture of what God will one day do you know, with the Jewish people. You know, I'll pour out my spirit. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, uh, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on, on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. See, that first part can be applied at least partially to Pentecost. The rest of it can't. The rest of it is about the day of the Lord. It's about the, the second coming of Christ. And he says there's going to be a remnant of survivors on the mountains of Israel. And, and I will come, you know, when they confess, I, I, will, I will come. Um, and then Zechariah uh, 12, we, we read verses 1 through 9. Uh, I want to read verses 10 uh, through the end of the chapter, and then verse 1 of chapter 13. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants, inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, notice what this says, how poignant this is. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping in Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo, which I believe is the place where, where Rachel weeped, uh, the Bible says Rachel weeped over the, the loss of the Jewish people uh, in, in a time of war. The land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, and the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shammai and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. In other words, all the people. Kind of a way of saying everybody is going to mourn. All the people that are left are going to mourn. 
On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So the confession of Israel is something that's taught actually over and over again in in the Old Testament. And we see pictures of it even in the New. You know, and and so next week we will look then at, at the response of Christ in the second coming uh, to, to the confession of his people and him coming back to do what he said he would do in Matthew 23. When you call, I'll come back. All right, let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your consistency and, and, and your perseverance and, and that you don't give up on us. Um, we sin greatly against you sometimes, Father, and I'm so glad that you're a patient, loving, kind, forgiving God. We don't deserve it. The Jewish people don't deserve it. But yet you spoke to them in the same way you speak to us, the church, and you say that if we would only confess, you will come and save us. And so, Father, I just uh, ask your blessing. Uh, I, I pray that we would glorify you today and lift you up. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.